amazed at what I am. I say what I think that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man. When we meet in the local hall, I'll be voting with them all. With a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers, out. And the rise of the factories fall. Oh, yeah. And welcome to our second episode talking about the birth of the trades union movement. In the last episode in this little sequence, we talked about the importance of the Tolpuddle Martyrs as a, a, a rallying point. However, today we want to look at the movement as a whole, so we just need to backtrack a little bit. We talked in the last episode about what a trades union actually is. A group of workers coming together to negotiate from a collective position to try and improve their pay and conditions. The roots of this kind of an organisation come from the medieval period, the workers' guilds. And back in the old days, a workers' guild in the medieval period kept the trade secrets. So if you wanted to hire a stonemason, you had to go to the guild. And you could only hire someone from the guild because only the people in the guild knew how to do it. Therefore, the guilds could control the price that they charge. They could control wages. That breaks down when you get the Industrial Revolution, because the Industrial Revolution introduces machines that can do the job, and the machines can be operated by unskilled labour. And your unskilled labour can be replaced very easily, and therefore they can be got rid of if they cause too much trouble. The opposition to this new technology takes a couple of forms. We've talked before about the Captain Swing riots out in the countryside and the Luddite attacks on new machinery and factories in the cities. In both of these cases, they're small, local things which appear to be part of a larger pattern. The Luddites claim to be taking orders from Ned Ludd, and the Captain Swing rioters are taking orders from Captain Swing. Of course, no such people exist. There is no Ned Ludd. There is no Captain Swing which is why it's very difficult for the government to be able to crack down on any form of organised resistance, because there is no organisation. It's just a group of local workers attacking things. As part of this fear of the organisation of the workers, and partially as a result of fear of the French Revolution and the American Revolution, there's various combination acts passed from 1799 onwards. And these are... Acts of Parliament designed to limit the ability of workers to act collectively, to combine, hence why they're called Combination Acts. After a wave of strikes, that is, people refusing to work, across the year 1824, the Combination Act of 1825 is passed. This limits the rights of trades unions to only being able to meet to discuss wages and conditions. Anything outside of that is therefore illegal. The idea there is to stop all sorts of problems that you get around strikes, which is the idea of picketing, where the workers form a physical barrier to stop people from getting into work, and also to try and cut down on this fear of intimidation of people caused by the union. So this is the social background. Trade unions exist. They are legal, but only in certain prescribed ways. And it's into this period in 1833 that Robert Owen from Scotland creates the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union, 
The idea here is to bring all of the workers together under one umbrella organization. He also sets up a cooperative movement. And the idea of the cooperative movement is that the movement itself buys goods in bulk and shops and stocks local shops. Those shops owned by the cooperative movement, that is owned by the workers themselves, because they've bought in bulk, can then sell the goods to the local workers at much reduced rates because they're not trying to make a profit. These ideas still exist today. That's what the co-op is at the end of your street. Within a week of being set up, the GNCTU has got over half a million members. It's astonishing the rapidity of the growth and it terrifies the government. However, there is a problem with the idea of the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union and it's this. Does somebody working in a mill have the same concerns as somebody working on a farm? And the answer is, of course, no they don't. And this is the problem. One single union cannot represent all workers because they have different needs. In the particular case of the GNCTU, the conflict is between the needs of the factory workers and the needs of the mine workers. Although the GNCTU is able to rally a huge amount of support uh, around the Toll Puddle Martyrs, the Toll Puddle Martyrs being arrested is actually the death knell of the GNCTU because it puts people off the idea of belonging to the trades union and swearing any sort of an oath. So the trade union starts to falter slightly. The GNCTU collapses pretty quickly under the weight of trying to represent everybody. In 1837, the Cotton Spinners Union took some strike action. However, they become violent. And this seems to embody the worst fears of the ruling classes about what trades unions are. They're threatening people, harassing people, and even in some cases shooting some people who are willing to work for less than the members of the Spinners Union. The reason that the Scottish Friendly Association of Cotton Spinners strike in 1837 collapses, however, is not because of the violent action. It's because they run out of money. You see, if you're a worker and you go on strike, obviously your employer does not have to pay you. Therefore, you can only stay on strike for a certain amount of time before you run out of money. The union can try and help you out a little bit, but in this case, this small Scottish-friendly association of cotton spinners runs out of funds and can't support its members anymore, at which point the strike has to end because they need to eat, so they have to go back to work. Add to that the fact that the leaders are arrested for their violent actions, and you can see that the limits of movement, the limits of the power of the trade unions, are pretty clear. This all changes in 1851, with the creation of a new type of union. These will come to be called the New Model Unions. The first example is the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, known as the ASE. Now, what's different about it? Well, firstly, the members of it are highly skilled. You cannot simply sack an engineer and replace him with the next person off the street. It requires somebody who is able to actually do the job. That immediately makes the threat of strike action much more powerful. Next, engineers are quite highly paid. That means they can pay a subscription to be a member of the union, which means that the union is well 
funded. The success of the ASE being able to actually win with the threat of strike action without even having to actually go on strike, but the fact that the threat itself is powerful enough to bring the employer to the negotiating table sparks off a wave of these new model unions. The carpenters formed theirs in 1860 and then tailors in 1866. By 1868, the ASE has 33,000 members. They're described as new model unions simply because they have a much more moderate outlook. They're not trying to overthrow the established order. They're not trying to spark a revolution. They're simply attempting to make the pay and conditions of their members better. And they are well organised and well funded through subscriptions. The success of the new model unions, however, is limited because they only benefit people in the educated middle classes, people in professions, people who have training and have jobs which make them difficult to replace. There is nothing which is currently looking after the interests of the unskilled working classes. However, following the model shown by the new model unions, in the 1880s, various groups of unskilled workers start to organise themselves and to take action. The two most high-profile examples of this are in two years, actually, 1888 and 1889. In 1888, the women who are employed in the various factories which make matches go on strike. They are known as match girls and their working conditions are horrific. They are working with highly toxic chemicals to create the sulfurous heads to go on the matches. The factories themselves are filthy and ridden with these toxic chemicals to the point where you get acid rain inside the factory itself because of the fumes collecting in the ceiling, then condensing and falling down. These women get what's called phosphor jaw, where their jaws actually start to rot away because of it. With the help of a campaigning journalist, they start to get the word out. And by going on strike, and by getting public sympathy, and having public meetings, and getting newspapers published, tactics that you recognise from when we're talking about the various reform movements, they're able to get public support on their side, and their strike is successful. Likewise, in 1889, the Dockers are able to bring the docks of London to a standstill. The entire trade of the empire grinds to a halt because these workers go on strike, and once again, they are able to get public opinion on their side. The strength of these unions and the organisation of them creates an obvious opportunity for a next step. And if you're looking for the significance of the new model unions and then the new unionism in the working classes shown through the Match Girls strike and the Dockers strike, here's the significance. With this money and with this organisation, they are able to start taking direct political action rather than simply employment action. And they are able to use the organisation and the funding to create the Independent Labour Party. And the clue is in the name. This is a political party, unlike the Whigs, unlike the Liberals, unlike the Tories, who is there purely to represent the interests of labour, of the labouring classes, of the workers. And that's the Labour Party that's still the main opposition in this country today.
In order to improve the lives of ordinary working people, the workers realize that rather than taking direct action on a case-by-case -case basis, they are better off joining a political party as a political movement and being represented in Parliament. And that is how trades unions play a part in the shift of power to the people. So what are the key takeaways when we're talking about trades unionism? You need to know where they came from, what they're for, you need to know about the Combination Acts limiting their powers. You need to know about the GNCTU and why that failed. You need to know why the new model unions were successful, but also how they didn't represent the interests of most of the working classes. Then you need to think about how new unionism gives the ability for the working classes to get what they want in terms of pay and conditions, and then the significance of all of this in leading to the creation of the Independent Labour Party and allowing political address of pay and working conditions. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck on your exams. Get up.